Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 52. There was never a longer six-minute period in the JFK assassination story. Nothing longer than the ride from Dealey Plaza to Parkland Hospital. now turning on to Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. I was on Stemmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way toward the trademark. It, it, it appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Stemmons Freeway, Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The president's car is now... Put me on, Phil. Put me on. Phil, am I on? We're here at the trademark. The motorcade is coming by here. I can see many, many motorcycles coming by now. Police motorcycles. Just heard a call on the radio for all units along industrial to pick up the motorcade. Something has happened here. We understand there has been a shooting. The presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man, spread eagle, over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. We can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. I'm in behind the motorcade, trying to follow them. It looks as though they're going to Parkland Hospital. We're on the road to Parkland at this time. Secret Service man is still spread eagle over whoever is in the car, the President and Mrs. Kennedy, and as we understand, Governor and Mrs. Connolly. At this point, it looks as though it could have been one or two or even all of the people within the car may have been the victims, may have been struck by shots. We don't know. Parkland Hospital in the distance. Now on Harry Hines Boulevard, following behind the motorcade. Many, many police officers, maybe 20 or 25 motorcycle policemen, falling in behind at the trademark. A huge crowd left behind, waiting expectantly to see the president. The motorcade now, motorcade now perhaps two or three blocks ahead of me. They're approaching the entrance now to Parkland Hospital, traveling at a high rate of speed. Ready police cars converging on Parkland from every angle, from every point. I'm pulling in now toward Parkland Hospital, coming to the approach. There's an officer waving me down. He's waving me around. There's a cordon. There's already a cordon of police officers running from their cars from their vehicles here. The official party, as I can see it, pulling around toward the emergency room of Parkland Hospital. The policeman says, no, you cannot come in here. You cannot come in here. We'll let nobody else in. I'm going to try to go around to the back of Parkland. 
I'm going around now, and I will try to get around to the back of Parkland and find out more details. It was definitely the president's car. We could see the first lady's pink suit. That's the only identification we could see, but we know it is the president's car. Another car directly behind the presidential car. There were also bodies in that car. Another Secret Service man spread eagle over them. We don't know. Perhaps there were some hit in that car as well. We're not sure. Coming around behind Parkland Hospital, more details as we have them. Ron Jenkins, KBOX Mole Unit, number six. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 52. The shots, they were still ringing in the air. It was the very beginning of the very worst nightmare. The president's limousine began a race to Parkland Memorial Hospital, which was approximately four miles from the Texas School Book Depository building, relatively close in one sense. Most of the driving would be on the highway. The route was a sweeping circular right turn of sorts that would get the president to the hospital in less than six minutes from the time the fatal shot rang out. Roy Kellerman and William Greer were the two Secret Service agents in the car that day with the president and Mrs. Kennedy, and with Governor Conley and Mrs. Conley. What a burden both of those Secret Service men would carry. William Greer was the driver. He was a simple and loyal man who would forever afterward have to live with the observation made by the world that the limousine had slowed down, indeed almost stopped after the first shot rang out, reducing a moving target to a sitting duck. As the final shot rang out, President Kennedy's head would indeed move violently backward and to the left. It would be left for history to determine whether it was the weird physics of a gunshot which produced the intuitively unnatural motion of back and to the left. That is, unnatural if you were a believer in the lone gunman theory. Really, it was the simple physics that, once revealed by the Zapruder film, would seal the deal for most skeptics. There was no need for a fancy forensic review. It was plain common sense. He was shot from the front. But all of that could come later, because right at this moment, as horrible and chaotic as the scene now was, the one and only thing to do now was to get the president to the hospital and to try to save his life and get Governor Conley to the hospital and try to save his life, too. Roy Kellerman would swiftly get on the radio and relay a message to the lead car in the motorcade, the one car that was ahead of the president's limousine. He would say that the president had been hit. No more details than that. Later, the Zapruder film would depict Jackie Kennedy in a state of shock, sitting close to her husband in the car, and only inches from her own head would that final bullet arrive, blasting the president's brains in a fine mist and spray all over. Parts of his skull would scatter. There were two pieces recovered from the limousine itself that would separately be retrieved and make their way to the Bethesda Naval Facilities in Maryland. Later that night, as the autopsy team would try and reconstruct what had happened, or so it seemed. A third skull fragment was later found on the street, and like pieces of the puzzle, it would be one more item to bring clarity to the conclusion. And like most things in this assassination, it would also bring controversy and all the interpretive science that came along with it. But not now. Those moments were reserved for the aftermath. 
Jackie, in her shock, and in the moment right after the fatal shot, had climbed up on her knees on the back of the limousine to retrieve a part of the president's skull, presumably to put it back where it belonged, to do what the world so wished that she could magically do. Oh, how they wished, once they knew. Secret Service agent Clint Hill would dash ahead as he sensed the danger, and in the split-second reality of what had happened, he too began the consciousness that was to imbibe them all. That dash would end with a lucky scramble and catch of the president's limousine as William Greer, the driver of the car, began to hit the accelerator and commence the frantic exit from the plaza. Hill took the couple of awkward steps that were required to affix himself to the rear of the limousine and thrust his body onto the back of it, and then get to the business of protecting the first lady and getting her safely back into the rear seat of the limousine for the frantic and high-speed ride to Parkland Hospital. Chief of Police Curry and the police motorcyclists at the head of the motorcade would lead the way to the hospital. Chief Curry would calmly direct the next steps now in the chaotic moments afterward. He ordered the police base station to notify Parkland Hospital that the wounded president was en route. The radio log of the Dallas Police Department shows that at 12.30 p.m. on November 22nd, Chief Curry's voice could be heard clearly. He radioed, go to the hospital, Parkland Hospital. Have them stand by. A moment later, Curry would add, Looks like the president has been hit. Have Parkland stand by. The police base station replied, They have been notified. William Greer would put the pedal to the metal. The limousine then proceeded down the Stemmons Freeway at speeds which were later estimated to be up to 70 or 80 miles per hour, turning on to Harry Hines Boulevard with the presidential limousine arriving at the emergency entrance of Parkland Hospital at about 12.35 p.m. Arriving almost simultaneously were the president's follow-up car, the vice president's automobile, and the vice president's follow-up car. Admiral Berkeley, the president's physician, arrived at the hospital between three and five minutes following the arrival of the president. The car that Admiral Berkeley was riding in was not sure what had happened, so they had, almost inexplicably, drove to the trademark first, and then had to make their way to Parkland from there. It wasn't far, but seconds seemed important at that moment. The trademark, of course, was where the president was en route, too, just a few minutes away from the plaza, and where lunch was to be had, and funds were to be raised, and fences were to be mended with a large group of Democratic supporters. The adrenaline now was palpable. The world did not yet know how bad this was, but those that had seen the goings-on close up feared that it was already hopeless. Hoping that God would intervene through one or more of those talented doctors at Parkland Hospital. That was not to be, and the world would soon know that too. But try, they must. When Parkland Hospital received the notification, the staff in the emergency area was alerted and trauma rooms one and two were prepared. These rooms were for the emergency treatment of acutely ill or injured patients. Although the first message sent to Parkland Hospital mentioned only an injury to President Kennedy, still two rooms were prepared. As the president's limousine sped toward the hospital, 
12 doctors were called to the emergency area. Some of them were surgeons and some of them were not. In some ways, the president was in the best place he could be. Parkland was the public hospital in Dallas. It was a big hospital with a big teaching component. And if you were wounded by a gunshot in Dallas, chances are you were going to Parkland to be treated. It was a place where gunshot trauma was a daily occurrence. Parkland's emergency room would treat, on average, about three gunshots a day, all year long. This was Texas. Guns were a way of life, and gun violence in Texas was a common occurrence in the Dallas of that era. The enormity of this incident engaged a cadre of doctors that are rarely called to an emergency scene together, even in the most active of hospital teaching environments. It was like an all-star game, with an overkill of talent to do the job, and yet the job itself was impossible, regardless of who had been called to do it. But this was the president and the governor. Officially, there were 12 doctors present that afternoon in trauma room one. For anyone who has worked in a hospital for a long time, they also know that trauma rooms were not all that big in those days. Maybe this one was about 15 feet square. In a modern trauma room, the area is expansive and is filled with modern equipment that was not in existence in those days. They are, simply put, much bigger now. And they are now designed for ease of movement and work. But in 1963, they were just big enough to fit the cadre of doctors and nurses and other clinicians in that room. The all-star cast of doctors that made their way to the scene that afternoon included Dr. Malcolm Perry, Charles Baxter, Robert McClellan, Ronald Jones, the chief of neurosurgery, Dr. William Kemp Clark, four anesthesiologists, Dr. Marion T. Jenkins, Nadolf Jacecki, Jackie Hunt, and Gene Atkin. There was a urological surgeon present, Dr. Paul Peters. There was an oral surgeon, Dr. Don Curtis, and a heart specialist, Dr. Fouad Bashar. There were plenty of other clinical personnel involved as well nurses and the like. We'll tell some of the personal stories of the men and women before we leave the hospital. But the president was not yet in trauma room one. Not yet. He was still in the car, blood steadily pouring from his body and already staining the light blue rear seat of the limousine where he had been situated. And some of that blood gently and steadily making its way onto Jackie's pink suit as she cradled her husband in their final mortal ride together. Upon arriving at Parkland Hospital, Secret Service Agent Winston Lawson jumped from the lead car and he rushed into the emergency entrance where he was met by hospital staff members wheeling stretchers out to the automobile. Special Agent Clint Hill, who had held on for dear life on the rear of the presidential limousine as it raced to Parkland, removed his suit jacket and covered the president's head and upper chest to prevent the taking of photographs. Sadly, if such photos had been taken, it might have avoided some of the controversy that would have come later. Governor Conley had lost consciousness on the ride to the hospital, but he regained consciousness when the limousine stopped abruptly at the emergency entrance. Despite his serious wounds, Governor Conley bravely tried to get out of the way using his own locomotion so that medical help could reach the president. Conley himself, seriously wounded, was reclining in his wife Nellie's arms. The governor would lurch 
forward in an effort to stand upright and get out of the car. But in a moment, he too would collapse again right there at the emergency room entrance and begin for the first time after the onset of the gunshot trauma, experience his first sensation of pain, pain which quickly became excruciating. The governor was lifted onto a stretcher and taken into trauma room two. For a moment, Mrs. Kennedy refused to release the president. She was there, just holding the president in her lap. What thoughts must have been there at that moment, so private, in such a public venue? I suspect she knew, right then, despite the trauma of it all, what the outcome would be. But this was the president of the United States, the leader of the free world. It was not over yet, by a long shot. Roy Kellerman and William Greer, along with Winston Lawson, lifted the president onto a stretcher and pushed the stretcher into trauma room one. The first physician to see the president at Parkland Hospital was Dr. Charles J. Carrico. He was a resident in general surgery. Dr. Carrico was in the emergency room already as he was examining another patient when he was notified that President Kennedy was en route to the hospital. He didn't have too much time to think about it, but emergency room doctors know the drill. It was approximately two minutes later that Dr. Carrico saw the president on his back being wheeled into the emergency area. Immediately, he saw that the president's color was blue-white or perhaps even ashen by that moment. Dr. Carrico would quickly observe that the president had a slow, spasmodic, agenal respiration without any coordination. It was not good. He was making no voluntary movements. The president was effectively still. His eyes were open and his pupils were dilated, but they had no reaction to light. The president had no palpable pulse. But he did have a few chest sounds, which at that moment were thought to be heartbeats. That was enough. On this split-second determination, Dr. Carrico concluded that President Kennedy was still alive. Working quickly, Dr. Carrico noted two wounds, a small bullet wound in the front lower neck and an extensive wound in the president's head where a sizable portion of the skull was missing. The head injury was horrific, even for a doctor to observe. There, before his eyes and the rest of the medical team, the president lay on the table with shredded brain tissue and a considerable slow oozing of brain matter from the wound. It would then be followed by more profuse bleeding after some circulation was reestablished in the emergency room. At that moment, of course, the doctors at Parkland were focused on saving the president's life and not doing an autopsy. What would come next would be a source of controversy in the reconciliation of facts between the last living moments and the related recollections of the Parkland doctors versus the macabre world of autopsies. A presidential autopsy that was just hours away and that would begin and conclude some 1,400 miles away before the sun came up the next day. Dr. Carrico felt the president's back, and at that moment, he determined that there was no large wound there, which would be an immediate threat to the president's life. He and the other doctors would immediately focus their attention on the serious problems presented by the head wound and the president's inadequate respiration. Dr. Carrico knew that he had to improve the president's breathing. 
He noted contusions and hematoma to the right of the larynx, which was deviated slightly to the left, and he also observed ragged tissue, which indicated a tracheal injury. At that point, direction of the president's treatment was undertaken by Dr. Malcolm Perry, who had arrived at trauma room one a few moments after the president. Dr. Perry noted that the president's back brace, as he felt for a femoral pulse, which he did not find, they had to move quickly to restore respiration. Dr. Perry knew that it was time to perform a tracheostomy. Doing so would allow the insertion of a cuffed endotracheal tube past the injury that would then allow for inflation of the cuff, which would then be connected to what was known, at least in those days, as a Bennett machine, or a type of mechanical ventilator that was used to assist in respiration. Dr. Perry, along with the assistance of several other doctors, performed a tracheotomy, which required about three to five minutes to complete. It would enlarge and obliterate the bullet wound. And in a flash and flurry of required medical procedure, the pristine nature of that wound would be lost forever. But the pristine nature was there for all the inhabitants of that room to see for at least a few minutes. Those inhabitants who, by God's will, were there in that room to witness the truth. Little did they know that those observations would forever hold the key to whether the bullet that pierced the president's neck was an entrance or an exit wound. To those who saw it that day, before its relevance would take center stage in the aftermath, well, they thought it was an entrance wound. But then again, they did not know of a bullet entering the president's back. To this day, the seminal question is simple. Did the bullet that entered the president's back exit through his throat, indicating that the two wounds were linked and that the one shot that caused these two wounds came from the rear? Or is the truth that these two wounds were not linked at all? That is, that they were not caused by the same shot, but rather by separate shots. And if that was the truth, was the wound to the throat then an entrance wound. Obviously, more to come on that one. Like I was saying, trauma rooms were smaller then. This was a room about 15 feet square. You can imagine the close quarters that ensued. With all those doctors and other medical personnel all crowded in, all there for one purpose, to save the president, and not to do an autopsy. While Dr. Perry was performing the tracheotomy, Dr. Carrico and Dr. Jones made cutdowns on the president's right leg and left arm, respectively. A cutdown is an incision in a vein to infuse blood and fluids into the circulatory system. Dr. Carrico treated the president's known adrenal insufficiency by administering hydrocortisone. In the end, it would make no difference. Dr. Robert McClellan entered at this point and began to assist Dr. Perry with the tracheotomy and care of the president. He would later recount that he had one of the closest and unobstructed views of the damage done to the president's head. Dr. Jones was there as well in close quarters. Dr. Fouad Bashar, who was the chief of cardiology at Parkland, along with Dr. Jenkins, who was chief of anesthesiology, and Dr. Giusecki, then joined in the effort to revive the president. 
Dr. Perry, leading the effort, would ask the team to insert chest tubes to allow for drainage of blood and air. Dr. Paul Peters and Dr. Charles Baxter initiated these procedures. For a moment, vital signs seemed to show something. The team had infused liquids through the cutdowns, they had performed cardiac massage, and they had established an airway through the tracheotomy. All of that produced some continuing peripheral circulation as the doctors monitored the president's pulse right at his neck as they felt his carotid artery and at his wrist as they checked his radial pulse. Ephemeral pulse was also detected in the president's leg. While these primary medical efforts were in progress, Dr. Clark made his way into the room. The severity of the head wound immediately grabbed his attention. Without thinking, he blurted out, My God, Charlie, what are you doing? Clark knew what the ultimate outcome would be in just a glance. And then, almost immediately and so sadly, he began to feel the presence of Jackie Kennedy right there in the room. It would grab him. It would grab his consciousness. You see, she had refused to leave her husband's side even when asked if she would rather wait outside. This model of a martyr's wife would answer no in the kindest and saddest of ways. And because she remained in the room at that moment, she heard Dr. Clark's comment. And the strain would show in her face for all to see. And he himself would forever relive that moment, too. He was the head of neurosurgery, and despite the dire circumstances, he kept at it, too. And he noted some electrical activity on the cardiotachoscope that was monitoring the president's heart activity. Dr. Clark would get even closer and observe the head wound in a more detailed way, describing it as a large, gaping wound in the right rear part of the head, with substantial damage and exposure of brain tissue and a considerable loss of blood. Interesting enough, though, when questioned later, Dr. Clark did not see any other hole or wound on the president's head. Dr. Clark and Dr. McClellan, both of whom probably observed the head wound in more detail than anyone else, would both comment later that the president had a full and thick head of hair and his scalp was covered with blood. That circumstance could have easily obscured at the time of care the discovery of an entrance or an exit wound in the head that was not observed as part of the main injury in the rear of the head. The idea being that what goes in generally must come out. A shot in the head should produce both an entrance and an exit wound. The mystery of this simple question of exit and entry and which direction the shot entered from was to be the core question that, if it could be answered later, would reveal whether there was a conspiracy or not. And the problems in figuring that out would start right there at Parkland. Just a little more knowledge, known and then documented, right there in the here and now, would have confirmed or toppled the official story. But such confirmation was not to be, as we all know very well now. Despite these heroic efforts by the doctors, it was God's will for this part of the story to be over now. It was time for the doctors to make a call. But first, there was to be what every Catholic man and woman seeks at the end. There was a need for last rites. It was time. The president was, of course, Catholic, and given the dire circumstance, priests had been called. 
It was Father Oscar L. Huber who had arrived to give the last rites, and at approximately 1 p.m., after those last rites were administered to the president by the good father, Dr. Clark pronounced the president dead. Mrs. Kennedy would continue to pray with Father Huber as the room emptied, and then the emptiness filled the room, or rather the silence filled the room, because his soul was present, and it was with Jackie as she touched his body so intimately, kissing his toe in one final beautiful gesture of love. In the absence of any neurological, muscular, or heart response, the doctors had concluded that efforts to revive the president were hopeless. The team in the room that day would all look up at the sterile clock on the trauma room wall used so often to record the time when the trauma team calls the ball and returns yet another soul to its maker. This time, the silent message played in the head of every person on the trauma team, every person right there in trauma room one, would be the same message heard around the world in just a short while. The difference was that they lived it and experienced it, and they heard it first. Let the record show that the President of the United States died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time on Friday, November 22, 1963. Something very close to that would be echoed by Walter Cronkite not long afterward, for all the world to hear. Even Walter Cronkite would find it hard to hold back the emotion of that moment. The team's decision was, of course, officially reaffirmed by Admiral Berkeley, the president's physician. Admiral Berkeley had arrived at the hospital after emergency treatment was underway and who had appropriately deferred to the ER and trauma team attending the president. Dr. Clark was the doctor specifically charged with making the final call, making that official determination that it was over, that the president was officially dead. He was the doctor to make the call because the ultimate cause of death was the severe head injury, and it was his call as the chief of neurosurgery. The time was fixed at 1 p.m., but really it was an approximation since it was impossible to determine the precise moment when life really left the president. We now know that President Kennedy could have survived the neck injury, but the head wound was fatal. From a medical viewpoint, President Kennedy was alive when he arrived at Parkland Hospital. The doctors observed that he had a heartbeat and the president was making some respiratory efforts, but his condition was hopeless and the extraordinary efforts of the doctors to save him were God's way of easing all of us into a future without him. And so, try, they did, to keep him, to keep him here with us. Since the Dallas doctors directed all their efforts to controlling the massive bleeding caused by the head wound and reconstructing an airway to his lungs, the president remained on his back throughout his medical treatment at Parkland. This fact would lead to controversy when, just a few hours later, the autopsy team would identify a gunshot that entered the president's back, a gunshot that was not identified at Parkland as a wound received by the president. Dr. Carrico would later testify before the Warren Commission. When asked why he did not turn the president over and thus identify the gunshot wound to the back, 
he gave an eloquent explanation, taking us through the medical reasons why the president wasn't turned over in the middle of all those other life-saving procedures. I guess a formality of sorts to belabor the obvious and explain the obvious to all of us laymen. But the interrogators were not finished. He was then asked why, after the president expired, that he did not turn the president over. He answered very simply as follows. I suppose nobody really had the heart to do it. Well, that was true. But, moreover, the Parkland doctors took no further action after the president had expired because, frankly, they concluded that it was beyond the scope of their permissible duties once the president had expired. At that moment, it became a homicide, and what ensued next was literally a battle over the body of the president and who would take possession. And that, of course, would determine who would do the autopsy. Little did anyone know that at that very moment, how critical the outcome of that physical fight right there in the corridor outside Trauma Room 1, how that struggle, that one physical struggle, overcome by a bevy of Secret Service agents and the Irish Mafia too, would contribute to one of the greatest mysteries inside the story of the JFK assassination. I had been over at the triage desk um, probably 10, 12 minutes, and the supervisor hurried that came from her office on the Harry Hines side of the hospital. She said, uh, there's been an accident in the president's motorcade, and they're on their way here. Well, the words were hardly out of her mouth until the doors, the entrance doors, just exploded. The first person they led down that hallway was the mayor of Dallas then, Earl Cabell. The next person that came through was a very frightened Vice President Lyndon Johnson. And then I saw this carriage come in with Governor Conley uh, on it, and he had been gravely wounded. The next carriage I saw, I could just see from the waist down uh, that it was a gentleman on, gentleman on there, and he was in uh, nice slacks. There were no shoes on his feet. and. There was a lady who I would soon know was Jacqueline, was laying across his head and shoulders. She didn't want the people around to see the damage to his head, although from the front, it didn't look bad at all. It, the damage was back here. I got into trauma one. I walked over to the carriage and immediately knew that it was President Kennedy. Also, in my estimation, he was dead on arrival. Um, I started trying to feel for vital signs there. I could feel no pulses. I did not have a stethoscope at that time. So um, his eyelids were about half closed, and his color was what, in medical terms, we call cyanotic, and that means it's a bluish gray. His, his eyelids were about half closed, and his pupils were fixed and dilated. And at this time, I noticed what, I, what appeared to me to be a big exit wound right underneath his Adam's apple and just before the, the notch there at the top of the breastbone. And on the cart, halfway between the earlobe and the shoulder, there was a bullet laying almost perpendicular there. 
but I have not seen a picture of that bullet ever since that day. Most of my time was spent just plastered against the wall. There were so many doctors in that room at the time. Dr. Kemp Clark, who was head of the neurosurgery department here at Parkland, after he pronounced the president dead, he just turned and walked out of the room, walked right by Mrs. Kennedy, who had been standing at the foot of the carriage all the time with her hand on the president's left foot. Early on, the, the supervisor had asked her if she would like a seat out in the hallway, but she declined. And the only thing I heard her say that day was, no, I'm going to stay with him. So she didn't, she didn't move all that time, but after Dr. Clark had pronounced him, he just walked right Mrs. Kennedy without stopping and said, Madam, your husband's dead. There was no response. I have never seen anybody in such profound shock. announcement. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. Thank you for listening to Episode 52 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.